You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson featuring Jeffrey Blaney. Well, Jeffrey Blaney, thank you very much for being with us. This is a great honour for me. I've been reading your material by choice, but also by compulsion, I think, since I was about 20, which is now quite a long time ago. Is that true? Yes. Uh, uh, The National Trust calls you a living treasure, which I think is remarkable. I don't know what that feels like. I don't even really know quite what it means. But uh, um, you've written, what, some 40-odd books, The Classic Tyranny of Distance, and more recent books, A Short History of the World, which is a masterpiece. And I'd recommend to people who want to get a feel for uh, how the world's worked. A Short History of the 20th Century, uh, How Wars Begin, A Short History of Christianity, and your most recent book, uh, The Story of Your First 40 Years, uh, Before I Forget. Uh, that's a remarkable record. Why do you feel that history is important? Well, I suppose uh, it's the reservoir of human experience and uh, the great part of human experience is outside our lifetime and our grandparents' lifetime and uh, history is about all, all, all we've got. Uh, the amount of experience that we can learn in our lifetime is, uh, is, is relatively limited so that his, history is there like a huge library waiting to be tapped if we want to tap it. I've noted uh, in my time in public life, many of the people I respected greatly, including political leaders, were avid readers of history. Uh, and they seemed to feel, I think it was Churchill who said that uh, all you need to know about statescraft can be learnt by studying history. He said that, did he? Yes, he did, mm. bringing the wisdom of the past mm. to the table. Yes. Of course, uh, you, you have to interpret history. There are always rival interpretations of what happened in the past. and. Uh, you have to choose which interpretation suits your view of human nature or how people behave. Well, back at the time when I was at university reading books like Tyranny of Distance, one of the things I had to write is, was uh, the topic was set for us, uh, is there such a thing as truly empirical history? And, and you raise that very subject. Uh, it seems that an awful lot of history that's taught now is revisionist history. It's designed to try and establish, if you like, a world view rather than to allow people to be properly informed about what's happened. I'm, I'm quite concerned about that. Yeah, I think that uh, many people who came into history uh, in the 1960s and 1970s uh, came in not because it was a way of investigating, a, a way of learning about the past and maybe glimpsing the future, they came because uh, they had a message which they could use the history platform to impart. Uh, So there's much less discussion about important historical matters today than I think there was, let's say, in 1950 when I began to write history. It's a sad thing to say. uh, Debate is all important, but uh, a lot of debate now doesn't take place. It seems to me that it's a very patronising and, and, and unfair thing to do to our children. It's effectively to make them victims of our own culture wars. So we adults you know, are involved, let's face it, in the West today in an enormous uh, brawl over who we really are. And our children, as a result, are at the whim of whoever has a sort of uh, 
the greatest clout in the classroom today, so to speak, in terms of who sets the curriculum and what mm. have you. Mm. They're not necessarily being taught accurate history, which means that they don't have that opportunity to bring the wisdom of the ages to the table. Well, they don't even have the opportunity to uh, evaluate their own country and the, their own civilization. Uh, it seems to me that uh, the present day Australia, for all its faults, is one of the great success stories of modern history. And that's why such huge numbers of people want to come here. Uh, we're one of the oldest continuous democracies in the world. You know, we had democracy in the times of Athens and the ancient Greek cities, but that wasn't real democracy, the modern kind of democracy. We're one of the exponents of it. And uh, that's one of the great achievements because we, we don't realize that most of the countries in the world are not democracies and may never become that. So that's something we should rejoice in. And we should also rejoice that this has been an extremely innovative country. So many inventions of importance to the world have, have come from Australia. And uh, people don't realize that uh, this country in 1788 uh, could feed in most seasons the people who lived here, but it couldn't feed anybody else. Well, in some years, I would think uh, Australia probably feeds not only the 25 million people here, but maybe 80 or 100 million people in other parts of the world, if you allow, let's say, 2,000 calories a day. You know, we, we look at the faults of this country, but we don't, and we don't tell children that this country also has great virtues, which they've inherited, and they have to maintain. Yeah, well, you're, you're touching a, a, a strong nerve there because I'm a farmer. And they tell me one Australian farmer feeds 600 people. And indeed, you're right. We feed three or four times our own population when we can get free of drought. Mm. And we clothe many more. Yeah. We're a major producer of the fibres. That's right. And, and what about minerals? And energy. it's all done. But that technology that mm. we employ is quite extraordinary. Mm. And then there are minerals. But let's, let's go back to this issue of objectivity. Uh, now, you had a, a really interesting um, early life. We're all the product of our early life. Uh, you were a son of the manse. Your father was a Methodist minister. You moved around. Must have been at one level challenging. How do you make friends when you move every four years? At the other level, very, very interesting because you saw an Australia that's gone. And how did that shape you? Well, um it's the only childhood we had. There were five children in our family. It's the only childhood we knew, so that we didn't think we were in any way disadvantaged that after four years we had to move on to another town. It meant that when you started a new school, you were well behind because the school had different standards and emphasised different things. But I learned so much about Australia. I mean, at the age of three, we went to South Gippsland. Lee and Gather, a daring town, and uh, that's where I grew up. My ambition was to be a farmer. You know, lucky my ambition wasn't fulfilled because I couldn't cope as a farmer. Nowadays, a farmer has got to be a jack of all trades, but and, and I'm not mechanically skilled, but I wanted to be a farmer desperately. And then we moved uh, to Geelong, then a, a small provincial city, a manufacturing city, and that was a very different world. And then we moved to Ballarat. We saw so much of the Australia that was and the different kinds of values and attitudes. Uh, you know, I, a lot of weaknesses that old time Australia, but it had great strengths and, and, and I myself honour it. Let's, I'll come back to that in a moment and, and trace through uh, where you went from there. But one of the things that um, 
that strikes me is that uh, one of the books you wrote, which I found really fascinating, not so much because it's so much deep and meaningful about the great thoughts and philosophies and how that shaped us, but just to show how we once lived, a forgotten Australia. And I think that book was called uh, uh, Black Kettles and Full, Full Moon. Moon. Black Kettle. Not quite the right title, but that's what it's called, Black Kettle and Full Moon. Right. Mm. And I found that just incredibly interesting. And of all the interesting things I learned, you know, the history of matches and how difficult it was to light your pipe or boil a billy before somebody came along with matches and I think the 1850s or whatever. Um, but then he was the one that really stunned me. Australia was a major importer of ice, not the drug, the frozen water. Yes. We imported ice from That's the right. Northern Hemisphere. That's right. Uh, in Boston, uh, which was then one of the world's great ports, uh, there were ponds that uh, produced ice in large quantities and uh, the ice was uh, cut and then carried down to the port and put into sailing ships, wooden sailing ships with no cargo other than ice. And those sailing ships would set out for Melbourne. Melbourne was the great ice importer. Pass through the equator where the ship was often becalmed. It might take four or five months to reach Melbourne. Then the ice was taken, by then a lot of it had melted, was taken ashore put into the fast Cobb and Co coaches, sent up to Ballarat and Bendigo and inland places, sent to the ho hotels in Melbourne, and uh, people paid a lot of money for the ice. Uh, in fact, they preferred it to the Geelong ice. Geelong invented mechanical ice. Geelong was the first place in the world to invent mechanical ice, but they, people in Australia said that as long ice wasn't cold enough and they still <laughs> preferred the Boston ice. I thought ice was ice. <laughs> but th there you go. So that's in part, you came, you know, of course you wrote much earlier about the tyranny of distance. Many of those inventions, refrigeration, we could export meat, aeroplanes. That's right. Distance. But, but before we go there, um, to go back to something earlier again, this whole question of objectivity, one of, um, I think, the truly remarkable things that you've been prepared to do, which we all need to learn from, was that you said once that perhaps we'd overdone the three cheers version of our history, you know, where we clapped everything that we'd achieved, we talked about our colonial days without regard for the downside. It was all about how clever we'd been. Then we had the sort of reaction uh, that wanted to describe us as horrendous uh, sort of sons and daughters of oppressive colonialists from the other side of the world. That became, I think you termed the, the expression, the black armband view of history. And you said that we need to meet somewhere sensibly in the middle, perhaps we needed a correction, but that the correction, it turns out to be more prejudiced and more dangerous. Uh, than, than the original that we were trying to break free of. Yes, I said that uh, in a lecture at Sydney University, I think in 1992, uh, I was brought up in the three cheers view of Australian history that uh, it was one of the great success stories of the world, but there was very little you could, you, you could criticise. Uh, mm. but, but that was born, that theory was born in many ways of the country being at war you have to maintain the morale of the country. You have to say this is a great country we're defending. And, uh, you know, we, we had uh, the First World War, 1914-18, then the 20 years that were strongly influenced by that war, then we had the Second World War. You just have to maintain morale and people are proud of a country if they give up, if they have to risk their life defending it. And then uh, came the period, uh, perhaps from the 
70s onwards when people said that the failings in Australia are much more conspicuous, much more important than the successes. And they said, look at the way we've treated Aborigines. Well, of course, there was much at fault in, 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 in treating Aborigines. Uh, but, but at the same time, there was a tendency to glorify Aboriginal society and to say that they lived in peace with one another. Well, of course, the evidence is overwhelmingly against that. They're human beings and they fought and you know, people like to say, well, uh, they, they had uh, a wonderful sense of uh, kinship. Well, that's true, but you know, a, a man could have uh, 10 or 20 wives in Aboriginal society. That's not quite kinship by a modern definition. So there's great virtues in Aboriginal society. We moved to the situation where we said, uh, our society is infinitely inferior to an Aboriginal society. I don't accept that. Likewise, uh, People said, look what we've done to the environment. Well, true, we've often failed in being custodians of the environment, but that's true of every, every country in the world over history. It's not been a faithful custodian of the environment. The environment has to be changed in order to support a larger and larger population. So I thought we moved to a gloomy view of Australian history from perhaps a view that was too optimistic. And that gloomy view is now extremely powerful and it dominates the primary schools, yes. which are the great educators. No matter what people say, universities are not the great educators in Australia, the primary schools are. That's and the primary schools insight. are homes of the black armband. Very interesting. It's a very interesting insight. That's my view. Uh, and, and well, I, it's something for us to really think about. Um, those formative years, just as we also know of course, that the, the, the very early years before you even started a preschool are incredibly important, and yet often we behave as though they're not, mm. I think. But uh, let's drill into that a bit more. Did uh, you go to preschool? I didn't, no, no, no I, I didn't, didn't go into a no, People say it shows, I didn't go no, into classroom until I was preschool. nine. I lived out in the middle of nowhere. Yes, I don't suppose I would have gone on very well at preschool. <laughs> <laughs> but to drill into this, one of the great problems we have, as Jonathan Haidt puts it, we now teach our children that life is a battle between good people and bad people. Well, we know that's nonsense. We're all a mixture. Mm -hmm. This lack of ability to hold things in suspension, we see it with the debate over Australia Day in a way. I mean, um, I can understand that Aboriginal people have deep grievances. I can understand that. But to move the date, my personal views, mm -hmm. that'd be madness. Why mm -hmm. not use the date to have a much more honest discussion about what happened? Mm -hmm. Don't lose the date. You may yeah. lose the discussion, mm -hmm. would be my view. Mm -hmm. But to come back to something, I just like say it's taken us uh, a very long while to accept Australia Day. Even even mainstream Australian yeah. society has been slow to accept it. In Victoria, we didn't even call it Australia Day. We called it ANA Day when I was a child, and many parts of Australia didn't celebrate Australia Day. Now, every part of Australia in some way or other celebrates Australia Day, and, and that's a great achievement. It seems to me when some success has been achieved that you decide to, to, to throw it out. I mean, I, I think the big mistake is that the Aborigines don't use Australia Day to celebrate their own achievements. I mean, they, mm. they say, Captain Cook, we've got no time for Captain Cook. Uh, they say, well, our ancestors discovered Australia. Well, in a sense, that's true. Why don't they build one? And we'll, we build a monument to the early Aboriginal explorers and discoverers. Their attitude, I think, has become very negative. And uh, if they want to criticise Australia today, why not do something positive themselves? Well, I, I, I agree. And if there are issues that they want to explore, 
we'll use the data to explore it, but let's do it in a sensible way. And, and it, what strikes me here, you see, is that uh, in the area that I used to represent, uh, there's an area called uh, Mile Creek where a terrible massacre happened in the That's area. That's in so, your old electorate, isn't yeah. it? Mm -hmm. And I, so I became very interested in the story. Uh, and, you know, it's been well researched now. And it was a horrendous thing, you know, a bunch of, I think it's 10 or 11 stockmen, uh, when most of the men were away, drove the women and children and the few remaining men that were in the camp at Mile Creek over a cliff. And it was terrible. Mm -hmm. Now, And it's beyond dispute, a lot of that story. It is. Mm -hmm. now, but, but here's my point. We never tell the story without recognising the nobility of the white people who were aggrieved and insisted that those men be taken to trial, including the manager of the station. It was one of Henry Danger. He was a famous landowner up there. His manager became aware of what had happened and courageously, it was very courageously, because he's probably his own life was in danger, he insisted that those men be brought to trial. Now, they were acquitted first time around, and people uh, from the jury were heard to say things like, I'd never hear, see a, a white man hang for killing a black man. But there was a man called Plunkett who was, I, I can't remember his title, but effectively the Chief Justice of New South Wales at the time. He was a devout Catholic, as it happened, burning with indignation at this terrible miscarriage of justice, managed to force a second trial and people were hung. So there's two sides of the story. You know, there were people who were noble enough to insist on justice and that's never told or too rarely told. You see, history's never straightforward. It's no. not a simple question of mm. one grouping of people are perfect and another group of people are all bad. Mm. That's the denier of the truth of human nature. Mm. It's inevitable that uh, Aboriginal leaders will be hostile to parts of Australian history and it will go on for a long time and uh, there are a wide variety of things they're entitled to publicised, but at the same time, uh, in the period where the Aborigines were believed to be maltreated, uh, the average Australian was giving from their own pockets considerable sums of money. There were no welfare states mm. to set up missions all around Australia. Now, the missions are out of favour, but the missions provided a welfare system for Aborigines which didn't exist in Australia for mainstream Australians. There was no welfare state in Australia in 1860 or 1880, in a bad time you were in, strictly speaking, in a depression, you were better off being an Aboriginal than being a white Australian. What did you do if you were a white Australian and you were unemployed? Mm. There were no social services. So that uh, it was much more complex than we like to think, but at the same time, uh, I respect the Aboriginal spokespeople, their leaders are entitled to draw attention to these grievances, but they should also draw attention to other things. Well, uh, I represented a lot of Aboriginals. I had more Aboriginals put you know, in, in, in percentage terms than almost any other electorate in Australia. Mm -hmm. And there was a very wide range of views. You know, it was often very interesting to talk to Aboriginal people, particularly older ones. I remember an old lady at Walgett telling me how deeply she regretted the loss of their mission. Yes. Because she said she and her friends had been given a surprisingly good education. They'd mm. been taught a lot about nutrition mm. and hygiene and what have you. And she was deeply appreciative of yeah. it. And she regretted that her grandchildren particularly 
had not had the same opportunity she'd had. Mm. Now, you don't hear that perspective. And I think the point you and I are just making is that it's, it's always much more complicated. Yeah. And we often ascribe ill intent to people who have really been very well intentioned indeed. Mm. Interesting. Uh, now you can turn into uh, your computer and you can find out all kinds of things and you can look up postcodes and find out what the people in that postcode were like and how they differed from other places. And the last time I looked it up about three years ago, uh, the most Christian towns in Australia were Aboriginal towns. Yes. Amazing. And uh, the most uh, unchristian towns were places like North Fitzroy and <laughs> certain suburbs in city. Now, that's a sign that that part of European civilization and Christianity that came amongst the Aborigines wasn't despised in the way we imagine it was. Now, many Aborigines cling to that part of our civilization and stand up for it more yes. than we do. We seem to despise it. Well, it's fallen from favor in, in dramatic fashion. Uh, Christianity is most, one of the most astonishing things in my lifetime. I couldn't uh, predict that it would happen, but it's, it's happened. And You've written about it extensively. Uh, now, some might say, well, you're the son of a man. So have <laughs> you been objective? Uh, I must say, from my point of view, I, I can't understand why it's so airbrushed out. I mean, I just gave you an example, really, uh, of uh, Mile Creek. Now, there was a very noble person of, of profound Christian faith who said, there's a terrible injustice here. You know, the idea that a man is lesser because of the colour of yeah. his skin is anathema. Mm. Uh, and he forced through justice. Mm. That was the influence of Christianity. Mm. You could say the same about the slave trade. Every time I mention that on one of these conversations, there'll be comments saying, uh, oh, the Bible condones slavery in reality. Yeah. The Christian churches have always opposed it. They just have often haven't had the power to influence the governments of the day. Mm. To be fair to the Spanish and the Portuguese church, they were adamant that um, the, uh, the, the explorers who went to South America should not engage in slavery, but they didn't have the influence to carry it. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, about the time Australia was settled, there was this massive debate that was very important, I think. I'd, I'd be interested in your reactions to this about the ending of slavery, and it was led by Christians. Slavery was abolished. What was the key principle? That the colour of your skin doesn't determine whether you're a full member of the human family or not. Mm. So we were settled at a time when at least large and influential slabs of a society rejected the idea that you should keep people as goods and chattels. You had to respect all, all souls of being, as Menzies put it, of equal value in the eyes of heaven. Mm. And it's washed out of the system. Yeah. Well, my, my own background, I was brought up as a Methodist and we went to church. We never went to evening church, which was in the 1930s and 1940s, often the big day. But we always went to morning church and well, we had to we were the children of the clergyman. And uh, we went to Sunday school, all those kinds of activities. and. Uh, you know, I, I look back in that time and I value the the, the, the people and what they did. Uh, you know, their their, their sense of uh, that the, there was standards that might be too high, but they tried to 
achieve those standards and I respect my parents for the life they lived and the amount of help they had to give people wherever they lived. In, in the 1970s and 1980s, I largely stopped uh, going to church. I don't know why, but I did. And then in the, about 1990, I started to go again. And I started, uh, when people were often attacking Christianity, I, I thought, well, the attacks are too extreme. And I found myself de defending Christianity. If I, if I may just, just say this, uh, uh, I was appointed to the uh, Council of the Australian War Memorial uh, soon after Mr. Howard and your party came to power in 1996. And uh, I, I, I thought when the unknown soldier was taken from his grave in France and brought back and brought to Canberra and placed there in that special tomb, I thought that, that's a, a very strange thing to do. Uh, I mean, the first AIF, the soldiers of the First World War from Australia were Christians. We know from the census that probably 98% of them were Christian and perhaps 1% were Jewish. And uh, here's, they're taking a soldier from sanctified ground in France, buried with a religious ceremony, and they're putting him in the war memorial in Canberra without a religious ceremony and without any religious inscription. And after a while in the councils of the war memorial, a first-class institution, I was really so pleased to be on the board and to meet the other members. I said, I can't understand what you've done. You've taken somebody from hallowed ground and you've put him into secular ground. You wouldn't dream of doing that to an Aboriginal. The Aboriginal that's, would quite rightly protest. Yeah. And, uh, and in that way, they've taught us a lesson. Yeah. And I said, I think he should be uh, given an, an inscription. The same inscription that was on his grave in France. I mean, there was a very strong debate and uh, all the heads of the armed services who in those days used to attend meetings of the war world said, we're in favor of that. And uh, so it was put on his tomb in Canberra. No, I think it is known unto God. It would cover Jewish soldiers, Islamic soldiers, if there are any, as I suppose there are a few in the Australian army, Christian soldiers. And uh, I, became, I became a defender of Christianity because I could see no other people who were willing to stand up and defend it. And uh, I, that, that's a sign of how <laughs> I've gone in a a circle and uh, uh, believe that uh, you know the, the Christian component of our civilization was very important and uh, we, 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 sh we should recognize it and if people want to discard it that's that's their right in a free world but the idea that you should constantly attack it and say that it gave nothing to our society to our nation seems to me to be tampering with history that's just yeah. my view. Well, I think you said somewhere that plainly for, for all of its faults, it's given us far more good than it has visited bad That's, that's my view. I, sh I happen to share that view. Do you? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and to lead out of that, uh, one of the things that I focus a bit on in these conversations is given that we've destroyed our story, we've really discredited it. Children go through our education system where, let's face it, our Christian origins, along with our broad cultural history, is disparaged or not taught. Mm -hmm. It's to be rejected, we're to find a better way. But what is that better way? What story 
what unifying narrative are we giving to our children and our grandchildren? Well, I don't suppose there is a unifying narrative which is given to them. Uh, no doubt in some schools they are given a, a narrative. Children like to be, like to have heroes. They like to be, mm. they like to barrack for their own society. And I think in schools that are disparaging of uh, Australia as, uh, as, as an unworthy country, uh, is unfair on the children themselves, especially boys. They're barrackers, and uh, they like to don't like to see their country disparaged, just as they don't like to see their football team or the cricket team disparaged. It may be wrong, but that's and, and likewise it's true of a great majority of girls. We we have to give them something to be proud of, and we should not teach them that they're superior oh, to the generations that have given them yeah. so much. But that's an interesting point in itself. At some point, I made this observation a little while ago, so apologies for those who have heard me uh, do it. At some stage in a relatively recent past, the value of humility and a right view of yourself has given way as a premier virtue to the idea of pride. And, and for me, you know, pride can be very easily something that just puffs up and leads to a fall. This, this need for a balanced perspective. You know, I'm a great admirer of Donald Bradman for his, his, his um, modesty and victory and graciousness in... <laughs> Donald, Don Bradman. Oh, yeah. You know, modesty and in, in, in victory, graciousness in defeat. Mm. Um, we seem to have lost that Australian commitment. You're, you as a historian, it always seems to have been one of the marks of Australians that you shouldn't be on yourself. Mm. That a due sense of proportion yes. and a humility is important. Yes, I, I think um, sport has been one of the great teachers in Australia. We're one of the first nations in the world to become obsessed with spectator sport, and mm. it's, it's very important to us. And I think uh, spectator sport in the 19th century, uh, while it was often highly competitive and rough and tumble, uh, there was a belief that uh, it, it was it was just as important to accept defeat graciously mm. as it was to win, well, we've moved a bit away. We've moved a bit away from that sentiment. Uh, but in, in public life, you notice it especially, and you would notice it in politics, that uh, uh, by the 1980s, the great word was rights. Yes. Everybody had rights. Yeah. Uh, responsibilities were pushed to one side. Y you can't have rights unless there's a reservoir of responsibilities that yeah. supports the rights, and uh, that was really the characteristic of mm. the 1980s, including that attempt by the Hawke government to give us a Bill of Rights. A Bill of Rights is lovely in theory, but uh, if it doesn't also emphasise that you have responsibilities, it's not worth the paper it's printed on. I'm glad I strongly opposed the Bill of Rights, even though people say, well, Nearly every country in the world has a Bill of Rights. Well, many of the worst countries in the world have a Bill of Rights. I agree with you very strongly. So did Bob Carr from the other side of politics to me. Yeah. And he was very effective mm. in pinning the failures mm. that can derive out of a competitive environment that arises. But I think there's a really important point that you raised. We don't talk about freedoms anymore. We talk about rights. Mm. And then if we're honest, those rights become competitive. 
So I have to compete for my rights versus you. Mm. That's not what we did in Australia. So we're not, as we speak, we've got a debate going on over a religious, religious freedom bill. Mm. We've never needed it in the past. It wasn't needed in Australia because even in uh, the sectarian days of Protestant versus Catholic feeling, which is something of a black mark, I think, on our history, but even then, we didn't need legislative protection. Mm. We evolved out of it by talking and debating and coming to our senses, I would argue. Mm. Now we have to resort to law. Mm. So we don't talk freedom, we talk competing rights. Yeah. Well, Mayor, these are all interesting topics. Uh, they're not so easy to debate in public no. as, as they were 20 or 40 years ago, mere universities. Uh, to me, are a disappointment. Uh, uh, there's much less debate in universities than there used to be. Uh, uh, one of the interesting things about universities is a national code for responsible conduct and research. To my surprise, uh, we have major universities that treat that code with contempt. Yeah. How can you have national institutions which don't support their own moral code? Yeah. And uh, it's very difficult to debate about that in universities. Mm. I shouldn't hold forth too much or I'll be expelled. <laughs> well, the good thing is that you're free to speak, as am I. <laughs> yes, I um, resigned in 1988 from university, so I'm a free citizen. <laughs> um, one of the things that uh, you said in your book, it struck a chord with me because uh, some of the people I respected most in Parliament when I went in were people from the other end of the political spectrum who had a very left-wing view of the world, but had a deep commitment to humanity. And I might have argued with their solutions, but not with their humanity and mm. their, their, their noble objectives. Mm. You, uh, I think, were great friends with many people that you differed with enormously, but were able to have intelligent conversations with yeah. when you were an academic, or when you were a student at, yeah. at Wesley, and then you ended up at Oxford. Melbourne University. Mm. And, uh, yeah. Yes, um, I, I, a lot of the... Uh, I I'm, 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 I'm conservative, not in relation to change, but conservative in relation to values uh, by, by disposition, I suppose. And, uh, but, but a lot of people on the other side of politics I admire. We had earlier this week the uh, memorial service for John Kane, who was mm. the leader of the Labor Party in Victoria, the Premier, like his father before him. And when he, I had newspaper columns at one time, and I've, I suppose I often attacked John Kane when he was Premier of Victoria, but uh, I, I can remember, I've known him for a long time, I played football against him when I was very young. And uh, while I've opposed him, I thought There's, there really is a, a solid, decent citizen. And when I heard uh, the testimonies to him at the memorial service, the kind of life he lived, uh, the way he, he would often travel at the back of the plane while his staff travelled, yeah. <laughs> or his public servants at the front of the plane. There was a, yeah. a, a really good citizen who yeah. loved his state and loved his country. And I thought people who knew him, irrespective of what they thought yeah. of his politics, should be proud that he was a fellow Australian who believed in giving something back to his country, something that he'd gained from earlier generations of Labour people. 
I, I understand exactly what you're saying. And in fact, uh, one of the earlier conversations in the series was with Peter Baldwin, who was from very much the opposite end of the political spectrum to me when we were in Canberra. But he's a very fine man with a deep concern for his fellow citizens. Uh, and uh, what he has to say about where we are now is really interesting. So that's a little plug for one of the conversations with somebody who's very different uh, in his worldview yeah. to me. But he cares about people. Mm. Um, let's explore something that you we were touching on a moment ago. You were saying, you know, uh, young people, particularly young men, like to barrack for their sports team. Uh, you can extend that out. They're proud to be Australian. You know, um, in previous generations, they've fought to protect freedom. Uh, you know, we, we, we love to see Australia do well at the Olympics. This is a really important point because, of course, many of those who now educate our children and so forth come from a worldview who that suggests that nationalism is a bad idea. You see it in many debates, but of course the ultimate example of it is Brexit. Brexit in many ways was a rejection of the European idea to do away with national boundaries. It's time to do away with a nation state. To me, that flies in the face of everything we know about human nature. We're tribal by nature. Now there's a bad form of tribalism, but there's a noble form, loyalty to kith and kin, to our community, to our nation. How do we resolve that tension? Because I think if it's clarified for them, most young Australians will say, yeah, I do believe in Australia. It, it, it may be that in 300 years' time, there will be world government. It may have been achieved by force or may have been achieved by common consent, but I don't think we'll like it particularly. Um, uh, the advantage of, uh, of having the nation is that you can have, uh, I, th I think democracy can work within a, a group with sh shared values mm. to a high degree. A democracy can't operate in the world. You couldn't have world elections for a world parliament that would leave people satisfied. I mean, the nation is the best institution we have at the moment. Uh, the, the day may come when it's whittled down, but uh, how could you possibly say, I support everything that the United Nations does? Uh, you, you couldn't possibly, because after all, the majority of countries in the United Nations are not democracies and don't believe in mm. democracy. They have very little tolerance for other values. We have to make the most of the world we have and nationalism, if it's extreme, is dangerous. But nationalism, is, if it's, a, if it's in moderate form, is essential. You can't have a, you, you can't have a working society in this uh, See, I, I would argue that the, the fatal flaw at the heart of communism, people love to argue if, they, if, they, if, if they're latter-day communists, they still exist. Uh, and we've got neo-Marxists, it seems, around the place, that oh, it was only the implementation of communism that was the problem. The theory's fine. I think the theory's seriously flawed because I don't think human beings want to give their first loyalties to the party or the state. Mm. They want to give it to their loved ones, mm. to their children, mm. to their spouses, whatever. Mm. They're it's interesting, partners. isn't it, the revival of respect for communism amongst the young? Apparently, it's quite apparent in, in, in the United States and quite apparent in England. I suppose 
is here if I had more contact with with, with young people in a wider sense. Uh, but, but, but communism started out as a kind of an ideal and people thought it's ideal that we share everything and we're all equal, but uh, communism in practice didn't work out that way. Uh, and uh, communism is, 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 is now rightly uh, seen as a virtue in some ways, but a terrible threat in other ways. But here's a new generation knowing no history and saying uh, communism looks really good. Uh, mm. Let's see where it went wrong and try again. Mm. Well, that, uh, it raises again the importance of a proper understanding of history mm. and out of that mm. shared values. Mm. I don't see how without shared values you can have a coherent polity. And we're all worried about fracturing in Canberra. But I think that reflects what we've become as a people. I think the fracturing we're seeing in our politics is mm. because of a lack of shared values mm. and, and a fracturing in the Australian community. Mm. It worries me that we're fracturing. We don't have a common story, a common mm. set of values. Mm. And we need to distill those out because I'm sure they're there. Yeah. I really believe they're there. But the trouble is that everything now from, let's, let's be frank, too much of our educational system, too much of our media and so forth, encourages us to focus on the things that divide us and the mm. things that we don't have in common rather than the things that we do have in common. Mm. Yeah. yeah, well, I tend to agree with what you say. But to come back to your most famous work, can you just run us through how you think our distance shaped us and then from that lead into the, the easy way we fell into democracy. Most countries went through years of bloodshed mm. and turmoil to establish the rule of law, the idea of the vote. Mm. We seem to do it very easily. Yeah. So yeah, the, the tyranny the, of distance first, Geoffrey, how did it shape us as a people? Well, well just on the, the question of democracy, uh, Australia began largely as a convict settlement. Mm. Uh, the convicts were sent out here and to serve their sentence and of course they're allowed to stay here as free people. In fact, if they'd served their seven years or 14 years in Australia, they could actually return to England. But of course, nearly all, all of them had no money yeah. to return to England. So here was a society which was a long way removed from democracy, but before long and convicts were still arriving here, but the, there was a free press. Mm and the newspapers could attack the government. There was the beginning of democracy with uh, little legislative councils, some of whose members were appointed by the government, but others were elected. Uh, th then by the early 1850s, uh, the colonies, as they were called, were unable to create their own constitution, New South Wales, South Australia and Victoria. There were free elections. Uh, it, Every, every male had the vote, including in Victoria and New South Wales, Aborigines, if they were part of society and they wished to have the vote. Here were some of the great inventions of democracy. The secret ballot was known overseas as the Australian ballot because... Really? Oh, that's right. Or in some places as the Victorian ballot, introduced about 1856. Uh, but that's a tremendous change where people can vote secretly rather than have their boss or the employer look over their shoulder and see how they vote, voted and make sure that they were 
punished or deprived of promotion if they voted the wrong way. I mean, that's, a, that's a, 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 an Australian invention. Australia was the first nation in the world to allow women both to vote for parliament and to stand for parliament. New Zealand was ahead of us, but New Zealand didn't allow women to stand for parliament. So that in some ways, here's one of the great laboratories of modern democracy, and uh, that, that, that's something to be proud of, but that, that's, that's not, not, not taught, taught in school, I would imagine, and not known by large, by half the population, well, half the population has roots in Australia that are very recent and understandably they don't know much history, so that uh, democracy was won quietly and quickly in Australia, but large numbers of people would say, we should have won it by revolution. We've got it cheaply. Well, maybe we did get it cheaply, but I, I think you're better if you can gain something without bloodshed. Yes. That's my view. That's my unpopular view. Well, uh, and we were talking about the influence of Christianity. Uh, women first secured the vote in South Australia, as I understand it. And it was driven actually by a group of Christian women, the Women's Temporal Alliance. It went with Women's Christian Temperance Union. Temper there my, you go. My daughter's written a thesis on them. Right. Yeah, they, they were the great campaigners, uh, campaigners for, yeah. for democracy. They believed that if women could get the vote, uh, one of the things they could do was control the liquor traffic and hotel opening hours. We forget that uh, drunkenness was a, was, was a, much more difficult problem than, than it is now in some ways because if a husband spent, let's say, 12% of the weekly wages at the pub, what the, he then deprived his yeah. family of things that they needed, whether more food or mm. clothes adequate clothes to wear to go to school, so that the temperance movement was really a social a, a, a social justice movement in the era before there was a welfare state to try to compensate people for their ill fortunes. Yeah. So I, I think the story of democracy in Australia, with all its failings, is a great story. And now democracy isn't doing so well in Australia. Partly the federal system is, is not working as it was intended to work. And the Australian constitution was there to say certain tasks belong to the states. Yeah and certain tasks belong to the Federation. Now, we've got many government activities that are carried out not only by the Commonwealth, but by the states and by the, sh the local shire or, or city. Uh, it, it's at the moment a muddle system and that doesn't help. It doesn't help. And we know from the Lowy Institute's work that many young Australians now doubt democracy. I don't blame those young Australians, partly because I think they've not been encouraged to explore the options mm -hmm. but also because of the things that you mentioned it's not working as well as it should mm -hmm. and politics looks fractured i'd say that's because our society is fractured but it still looks fractured and as though it can't take us forward mm -hmm. to me it comes back to the need though the very thing we're talking about a better understanding of our history a friend of mine was talking the other day about a discussion he had with a young 18-year-old Australian girl uh, and she was astonished and angry to learn that um, in the view of um, my friend we were once a British society 
she was angry about the idea that we'd had anything to do with Britain and wanted to deny it and simply say, no, we're a multicultural society. The need to understand where you are if you're to move forward surely requires that you understand where you've come from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Australia in, uh, in the 19th century was uh, predominantly a, a British society with the English language, English laws, English institutions. Uh, there were substantial minorities at one time on the goldfields in the 1850s, a big Chinese population, overwhelmingly men, very few women. Uh, there were large German populations in uh, South Australia and the women were in Victoria and parts of Queensland and the back of Albury. But uh, the, the, the Germans accepted that this was an English society with this institution. That's why they came here because they were persecuted mm. in Prussia and their own homeland so that we had in some senses a multicultural population, but they were very much in a minority and they accepted the values of the host society and welcomed those values. Let's uh, then uh, just round it out with a thought. At the moment, we're consumed with the issue of climate change. Now, I don't want to say for a moment it's unimportant. That's not my topic here. My worry is that we have learned, that we've forgotten how to have a sensible, reasoned, respectful discourse and that we'll end up implementing ad hoc and unwise policies because we've lost the ability to discuss. Now, we've always been robust in our discussions in Australia, but what has allowed us to descend to the point where reason is so easily sacrificed in your view? climate change or global warming is really one of the most fascinating intellectual topics of my lifetime and maybe of the last 200 or 300 years. It's really quite a difficult topic, but we try to make it simple and uh, it, 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 it puzzles me in, in, in many ways that uh, we, we as Australians don't realise how volatile our climate has been traditionally. Means in, in Europe, in their history, they don't have the same history as we have. I mean, here was this land populated by Aborigines 20,000 years ago. They'd been here for the previous 40,000 years and suddenly their whole world changed. The seas began to rise to a degree that nobody would dream of predicting in the mood of current room. The sea levels rose by over 100 metres, generally around the world. Australia was cut off from New Guinea. Australia was cut off from Tasmania. At one time you could walk from Hobart to Port Moresby and suddenly this whole world changed and uh, Australia became a completely different place. The climate changed completely. That, that's a vital part of a history. And we, it wasn't man-made global warming. There must have been some other cause of it. But that's part of a history. We forget that climate is incredibly volatile. We now know that in the 12th century AD in Australia, before any Europeans were here, in the 12th century AD, a very dry climate in most of Australia, especially the temperate zone, uh, 
and in 1174 began a drought that lasted for 39 years. The damage it must have done to the country, the population, population must have shrank, shrunk very considerably, the birth rate down, the death rate up. It's not part of our history. We know that from drills put down in the East Antarctic in what they call the Law Dome. I mean, this should be part of our thinking. And if it were part of our thinking, we'd say, well, it may be that our human industrial civilization is harming the climate, but there are presumably other factors because look what's happened in the past. You know, it should be a much more open question for debate than simply saying we know what the cause is, is full stop. Uh, people say we should trust science, we should learn from science. Well, of course, science was at fault. Science in 1950 told us that there was no danger of the climate changing in Australia. You, you should honour science, but you don't give it complete trust. So I remain uneasy that no debate takes place about things that should be debated. Of course, it's a major a matter and we should be taking it seriously, but it's been incredibly simplified, especially in this last bushfire season. This, these are my heretical thoughts. Well, thank you very much indeed. The wisdom of the ages. Well, not really. <laughs> I've enjoyed the conversation hugely and I hope our listeners will as well and watchers. Uh, but I have to ask you this before I forget. It's the first 40 years of your life. There have been a few more years since. Are we going to hear the rest of the story? Well, I've written, I've written parts of the next... Uh, I, I, I may do it. I'm, I'm, I'm doing, doing a, a, a bit at the moment. Of course, I have to re-enter controversies. I've been in a lot of controversial situations. I don't like controversy or controversy, I don't, I, but I don't shy away from it. I prefer that it didn't take place, but if it's there, I unwisely take part in it because that's why you have a mind. That's why we have a, a democracy. That's why we have media, so people can say what they think. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, please visit johnanderson.net.au.